Well, we're going to turn back to Romans chapter 12. We're going to focus on verses 3 to 8 um, this afternoon. So why don't I read those um, and then we'll think about them together. So Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the, measure, with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then Give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Well, this is the word of God. And this is what will teach us how we are to be getting on with living for Jesus in these unusual days of being locked down. So we were thinking last week about uh, offering our bodies as living sacrifices. Now that's all very well and good, but what does that really mean in practice? What, what does it look like? Well, the great thing about Romans chapter 12 and 13 is that Paul unpacks now what it means to be a living sacrifice in loads of really practical ways. But the danger is that we hear the language of living sacrifice and we immediately assume it must be some bold grand, adventurous gesture that we make to show our devotion to God. And we've all heard stories, inspiring stories of people who've made incredible decisions and they've left so much and they've gone overseas to be used by God in all sorts of amazing ways. And God has achieved great things through them. And we find ourselves inspired by those stories and we begin to think, well, perhaps I should give up my job. Perhaps that's what this all means. But you know, to be a living sacrifice, it, it is actually about everyday decisions that we make in everyday life. Sometimes that can be much harder. So imagine one day I say to my wife, I love you, I love you so much, I would give anything for you, I would even die for you. That is a, a bold, grand statement of my love. But when it comes to the less dramatic questions of who takes the bins out, suddenly my passion and my undying commitment seems to fizzle away. We choose to be a living sacrifice, not by every now and then making bold and grand gestures. We choose to be a living sacrifice every day in the hundreds of decisions that we make. So Romans 12 doesn't tell us that we've got to move overseas. It doesn't say that we need to adopt 20 orphans or set up 17 charities. But it tells us to love one another. It tells us to not seek revenge. It tells us to show hospitality, to pray. These are the everyday things of life. And that's where we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So that we're never going to be ready and this is, this is really important for us to see. We will actually never be ready to make the big, bold, incredible choices if we're not practicing it in everyday life. 
Because it may well be the case that someday God calls us to do something ambitious and exciting for him. But we won't be ready unless we've practiced every day. So that's what we're on. We're, we're talking about offering our bodies as living sacrifices in the mundane, everyday things of life. And in particular, in um, the verses we have in front of us today, we're going to be thinking about that in terms of the way we get on with serving one another in church. Using our gifts to serve one another. So that's what we're doing. And we're going to look carefully at what Paul says. We're going to see two big things um, this afternoon. Firstly, if we're going to serve one another, firstly, we're going to learn to measure ourselves according to faith. And then in the second half of the talk, we're going to think about how we need to view ourselves as members of one body. So let's start with this first point. We need to measure ourselves according to faith. Now, we love measuring things. In fact, human beings seem fairly obsessed with measuring things. I don't know if you were ever a child. Well, I mean, obviously you were a child. Everyone was a child. I don't know when, when you were a child, whether you did that thing of standing by a wall and you get a pencil and you, you mark your height on the wall and then the next year you do it again and you see how you're growing. We love to measure. Perhaps you had someone short in your family who you were trying to catch up with in height. We had Granny. She was really short, only about four for eight, and it didn't take long to catch her. But it was exciting when you managed to reach that height. Or we do exams to measure our success, or we download apps like Strava to measure our speed and our distance. All the time we're measuring, measuring. Constantly held up against something as the standard to see how we measure up. And as we measure ourselves, what happens is we then compare ourselves to one another. This is what Strava's all about, right? You do your run or your cycle, you put your thing up on Strava, and then other people can see it and compare themselves. And so we compare ourselves with our measurements. I'm taller, faster, cleverer, richer. Whatever it might be, the measurement I'm choosing to use that gives me value, I then compare myself to others. I mean, the Guinness Book of Records is a book which is dedicated to page after page of people who've been measured and found to be unsurpassed. Now that means if this measuring thing is happening all the time, it is essential that we learn to measure ourselves rightly before God. Because if we don't, we will spend our lives comparing ourselves to one another and constantly either feeling superior or inferior, either feeling proud or feeling crushed. And the genius thing is that God has given us a measure to use. It's not we're not supposed to measure ourselves at all. We are. God's given us a measure and it's the best measure ever. He says that we're to think of ourselves in accordance with the faith. And faith is a radical upside down measure. So let's get into this um, in verse 3. Paul says, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, so here's Paul speaking as an apostle, he's been given this grace. He doesn't even see his apostleship as something he deserves. That was a grace that was given to him. And he now speaks to them and he says, here's the danger. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. 
the danger is that we can think of ourselves too highly. We can get a distorted view of ourselves, like those wobbly mirrors that make us feel bigger or taller or thinner, whatever it might be. And we can have a wrong view of ourselves. We can view ourselves too highly. He talks about seeing ourselves with sober judgment. And that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? When someone is drunk, their mind is distorted. So they think that they can sing, and they think that they're funny, and they think that they're invincible, but they're not. They think too highly of themselves. And human beings have a tendency to distorted thinking, to not seeing ourselves clearly. And many times that means we overestimate our abilities. The really interesting thing is that in psychology, this is a recognized thing. It's called illusory superiority. Or it's called the above average tendency. And most intriguingly, it's called the Lake Wobegon effect. And it's called uh, that Lake Wobegon is uh, named after the fic- fictional town of Lake Wobegon, where, this is the quote from this fictional town, all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. And psychologists use that idea to say that there's a tendency in humanity to overestimate ourselves. In the United States, a survey was done that revealed 93% of car drivers believe themselves to be above average drivers. And we can often fall into that trap of having too high an opinion of ourselves. Paul says we need some sober judgment. We need to see things more clearly. But it's also true to say that some of us see ourselves too lowly. Some of us have a distorted view of ourselves and think we are less. We think we are worthless and useless. And Paul is not asking us to all go around saying, oh, I'm so rubbish, I'm so useless. That's not what he's pushing us towards. Not the, oh, I'm terrible at piano, when actually you're grade eight. That's not what Paul wants. We're not talking about false humility or pretending to be something. No, our problem is that we're just using the wrong measure. We need to learn to use the measure of faith. And faith really is a genius measure. That's what he says at the end of verse 3. So think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. It could also be translated to think of yourself according to the measure of faith that God has given you. Now what Paul means, he doesn't mean that all of us have got a different measure of faith. All of us have got a different amount of faith and that's what we should be thinking about. No, Paul says there is this measure of faith. When you view yourself, think of yourself in the light of what faith says about you. Perhaps that doesn't make much sense. Let me try and unpack it for you. This is how our minds are transformed when we view ourselves through the eyes of faith. And there's three ways here why faith is such a great measure to use. Firstly, If we can see ourselves through the eyes of faith, then faith eliminates boasting. Because as soon as we talk about faith, we're talking about God rather than ourselves. Faith is not a natural ability. It's not something that I'm born with. 
So here comes a sprinter. Oh, they're fast. They were born with a natural ability for sprinting. No, no, faith is not a natural ability. And faith is not something that we can master and develop like juggling. You've spent hours and hours mastering juggling. No, faith is not something that we can master. In fact, faith is the absolute opposite of all of that. Faith means saying, there is nothing I can do and throwing myself on God. I need you, I need you. Now, faith has been one of the central themes of this whole book of Romans. So we don't have to guess what Paul means when he talks about faith. It's one of the central themes. And the argument that Paul has built up around this idea of faith is that we cannot save ourselves. So he says back in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means according to God's measure, we have fallen short. If God's glory is the standard that we measure ourselves against, we've all failed. No matter what degrees you might have, no matter how much praise is heaped upon you, no matter what promotions you may have achieved, no matter how high an opinion we have of ourselves, none of that matters. According to the measure of God's glory, we have all failed. That's pretty humbling. God is not nearly so impressed by our gifts and achievements as we are. In fact, they count for nothing before him. Faith tells us that on our own, we've fallen short. But that sentence in Romans 3 goes on, listen. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. You see, there's faith. What God has done through Jesus is made it possible for those who have fallen short to be put right. Jesus has paid the price for us. And faith is about receiving the gift that God gives us. Faith is about admitting we've fallen short and receiving the forgiveness and the righteousness that Jesus won for us by his death on the cross. Faith doesn't tell us how impressive we are. Faith tells us how much we need Jesus. And of course that means that boasting is excluded. That's why he says in verse 27 of Romans 3, where then is boasting, it is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. As soon as you measure yourself according to faith, as soon as you see yourself through the eyes of faith, all boasting is gone. You have nothing to boast about. Because it's all about what he has done. So faith eliminates boasting, but secondly, it elevates Christ. When we see ourselves through the eyes of faith, suddenly it makes much of Christ. We see how much it rests on him. It magnifies him. Do you know, I see myself rightly only when I see Christ rightly. Our value, our significance, our esteem all come from him. 
Do you know, our world says that you should look in the mirror and love what you see. Look at yourself, look at ourselves, look deep within and accept the person that you are, love the person that you are. But the problem with mirrors is that when you look in a mirror, you are constantly measuring yourself, comparing yourself to others. And mirrors are never going to be the answer to getting a right view of ourselves. But faith comes along and says, no, you don't need a mirror, you need a window. So turn your mirror into a window and gaze through the window to Christ. Gaze upon him. See Christ as the one who died for you. See Christ as the spotless Lamb of God who shed his blood to make you clean. When I see myself by faith, I see all that Christ has done and it makes my soul cry out, Hallelujah to Jesus, my Savior. So the person who measures themselves according to faith will talk much less about themselves and much more about him. They'll talk about what he has done and his achievements, not mine. My record of achievements, which I so carefully put together when I was a teenager with all my little certificates and badges and all the things I'd ever achieved, that counts for nothing. What matters is his record of achievements, what he has done and all that he has paid for me. Faith is the greatest measure by which we can understand ourselves rightly because it eliminates boasting, it elevates Christ and thirdly, it then motivates obedience and service. If I am motivated by selfish glory or if I'm motivated by a desperate need for approval, if I'm motivated by the need for affirmation or the desperate need to prove myself, if I need applause then my service will always be a struggle and it will always be spoiled. But when I see myself through the eyes of faith, when I see that I am a sinner who has been saved by Christ, then it becomes my joy to serve him with everything that I have. There is nothing to prove. I've got nothing to prove. I serve because of all he's done for me. And I serve Christ in freedom. I don't need to compare myself to others. This is so important for us as Christians because otherwise we spend all our time looking at other people and thinking, I wish I had their gifts. I wish I could do what they did. But instead, we see ourselves through the eyes of faith and we say, God, you love me because of Christ. I just want to serve you in whatever way that you would use me. Let me become what you shall choose to make me. It motivates our service. So let's ask God that he'd help us to view ourselves rightly. Let's ask God that he'd help us to measure ourselves according to faith. Eliminating boasting, elevating Christ, motivating service. And that leads right on then to our second main point. Because as we measure ourselves according to faith, that means we're then able to view ourselves as members of one body. So look how he goes on in our verses. So he's talked about this 
think of yourself in accordance with faith. Verse 4, for just as each of us has one body and many members, these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. As you get a right view of yourself, you're then enabled to get a right view of the church. Now I think verses 4 and 5 are pretty strong stuff for a low commitment, arm's length, socially distanced world. We, though many, form one body. Now look, I don't think this is a difficult image. You don't need a degree in biology to understand this. You don't even need a GCSE in biology to understand that we each have one body. You don't have another body sitting around at home. You've got one body and it's made up of different parts. And that's the image that Paul uses to describe the church. It's such a beautiful image. If only we could treasure our church family this way. We're one body. I did hear of one preacher who took it a little bit far as he was preaching this passage. He said, listen, some of you, some of you are the hands. You're the practical ones. You're the workers. You're the ones who get things done. Some of you, you're the, you're the knees. You're the real prayer warriors in the church. Some of you, he, he was getting a bit warmed up by now, got slightly carried away. Some of you, you're the tonsils. Turns out we don't need you. And some of you, you're the appendix. We didn't even know we had you until you caused us trouble. Now look, obviously, he's going much, much too far with that image. And you can push the image of the body too far. But, but you know, I think our problem is that we don't push it far enough. We talk about being one body, and we talk about the church being a body, but have you ever really pushed to think about just how big a thing that is to say? It's far more than just that we're kind of all different and we all try to work together to get a job done. Paul talks about us belonging to one another. Each member belongs to all the others. So it's not like a football team. You know, I belong to a football team and we've each got our part to play and, you know, I'm a defender and you're a goalkeeper and we play together and we each do our bit. Paul says, no, no, it's, it's, it's much more than that because the defender doesn't belong to the goalkeeper but in the church, we belong to one another. Now, that's not something we can manufacture It is a reality that's brought into existence because of two little words. Look at the start of verse 5. It is in Christ that we're one body. It is by virtue of the fact that we are in Christ, united to Christ. Now, back in chapter 6 of Romans, Paul has unpacked in great detail what it means to be united to Christ. We're joined to him in his death and we're united to him in his resurrection. Being in Christ means that we belong to him and all that is his, he shares with us. There is no richer, deeper, greater description of what it means to be a Christian than to be in Christ. Everything that is his becomes ours. But of course, if I'm in Christ and united to Christ in that extraordinary, powerful way, and you are in Christ and united to him in an extraordinary, powerful way, then we are joined to one another. He's the link between us. 
We belong to one another. Now that's all very well to say, but what does that really mean in practice? Let me tease out a few implications. It means that we're not just individuals. Now, we don't lose our individuality. I love the way that Paul emphasizes the each of us, each of us. So verse 4, just as each of us, um, verse 5, each member belongs to all the others. Verse 6, each of us has different gifts. You see, we, we're still individuals. We still have our personality and our individuality, but we are brought together in this one body where we belong to each other. Now that means if this is really how the church works, that means when we make decisions, they impact the whole church family. So we like to make a distinction between church life and personal life. Well, this is nothing to do with my church. This is just to do with my personal decisions. But actually, that is not a helpful distinction. Because every decision I make is going to have an impact on the rest of my church body. So, for example, when I consider changing jobs or moving home or what I do with my time, that decision that I make impacts everyone else. And so at very least, one of the things we should be asking ourselves is, how will this decision that I'm making impact the rest of my body? I think that means we should share in these decisions with one another. We should help each other to think these decisions through. Now, I do not mean in some weird, over-the-top way. I'm not saying that the church controls all of our lives and particularly not that the church leaders control lives. No, this is a one another thing. Now that can happen. It can get abused and it can get distorted and people can become controlled and manipulated. I understand that. But we tend to completely disregard the impact of our decisions on our church family. So as you think about decisions that you're making... Think about your family, your body. Let's make those decisions together. Let's talk about those decisions together. Or what about when someone's under particular pressure? Perhaps their family or their job or something, or, or they have an illness. Sometimes people say, so I've just say, say something like, I've just got to take a bit of a step back from church at the moment. Now, again, that's a, that's a mistake. That's not the way we're to think. Rather, church being a body means it's precisely at that point that we rally around to help out, that we stand together. Yes, of course it means that someone may not be able to attend as many meetings as they were able to. But we're not measuring the value of someone by how many meetings they attend. We belong to the body. And there may well be periods when you are not able to do that much physically within the church family. That's okay. That's what the body's for. That's where we help each other. But we need to have this mentality where we're saying we're a body. How do we help each other? And particularly at this time when we're all spread out and we're away from each other and we're not able to see each other as much. We need to work harder and harder at being this body that says we need one another. We belong to one another. We're united because we're united with Christ.
And that will particularly show itself, um, verses 6 to 8 say, in terms of the way we then use our gifts. Verse 6 is very clear. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. So here's the point. If you are part of this church body, you have been given grace, and that grace comes with gifts. Gifts that God has enabled you to do. Gifts not to make you proud and not to make a name for yourself, but gifts in order that you might serve other people. And there's all sorts of different gifts. And Paul lists, I think it's seven of them here. In other places, he lists lists different gifts. This is not an exhaustive list. I'll tell you this one thing, though. Every single one of those gifts has one thing in common. You can't do it on your own. None of those gifts are things that you can do on your own. You need other people. Just like if you want to have a game of tennis, you need someone else at the other end of the net. Well, if you're going to prophesy, you need someone to prophesy to. If you're going to serve, you need someone to serve. You're going to teach, you need someone to teach. And so on. These are gifts that we use to serve one another. And our mentality is to be, I belong to this body, how can I serve? This isn't supposed to be a checklist where we go through and say, I don't think that's me, I don't think, oh, that one might be me, that one might be me. No, rather, this is a whole range of things to say, look, what are you good at? What are your passions? What do you enjoy? Get on and use it. Get on and grow in serving in that way. Can I say, I, uh, one of the things that challenges me in these verses is that if we're therefore going to be a body, we need to give each other opportunities to serve. You see, I wonder sometimes whether church becomes too much where you have a small group of people who are the players and then a group of other people who feel disempowered, who sit and watch the players doing the stuff. That's an unhealthy view of church. Church is to be a place where people are able to serve. It is part of being the body. And any time that we disempower people from serving, any time that we give the impression that we don't really need people, we're in trouble. If you come along to Globe Church and you find yourself thinking, I'm not really sure Globe Church needs me, I urge you, I I plead with you, we need you. We need the gifts that you have been given. We need you to serve. So please don't feel like there's no place for you. Talk to someone about that. Come and talk to one of your your focus group leader. Come and talk to someone in the church, one of the elders, or someone that you trust in the church and say, I can't see where I can serve. We'll find ways to get you serving because we need one another. And it means, therefore, that serving is costly. Serving costs us time. It costs us energy. Sometimes it will mean that we're exhausted. Sometimes it will mean that we're tired. We have to go to a focus meeting when I don't want to go to focus because I'm tired and I've had a busy day. Or I've arranged to meet for coffee with someone and I, I really love just to have an evening in. But serving means we go and we lay down our lives. That is offering your body as a living sacrifice. 
And as you leave your flat to go to focus, you leave your flat saying, Father, here is my body as a living sacrifice to you. I don't want to go tonight, but I'm going to serve. Do you see what I mean about this being an everyday decisions in everyday life? Let's get on with serving because we're members of one body. And these gifts are so varied and so massive. Let's use them in order to serve him. Why don't we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this amazing vision that you've given us. Thank you that in view of your mercy, we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices by serving in the church. Lord, please keep us from pride. Keep us, keep us from thinking too highly of ourselves. Keep us from using our gift to try and make a name for ourselves. Help us to measure ourselves according to faith and then help us to view ourselves as members of one body. Lord, we ask for your help in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Joe's going to lead us in some music as we respond to God's word, and particularly as we learn to see who we are, see who God says we are. I am who you say I am. Learning to measure ourselves according to faith and view ourselves as members of one body. Say I am.